Hello, I'm Regina Botras and welcome backstage where we talk with theatre makers from actors, directors, writers, theatre heads and beyond about their life in the theatre and how they got to be where they are now. My guest is Julian Merrick. He is a theatre historian and cultural policy analyst, as well as an award-winning theatre director, having directed over 60 theatre shows and is winner of the Helpman Award for Best New Work in 2012. He is Professor of Creative Arts at Griffith University. He was an artistic director of his theatre company, Kick House Theatre, which ran from 1989 to 1998. Previously, he was Associate Director and Literary Advisor of Melbourne Theatre Company and was Founding Member and Deputy Chair of Playwriting Australia from 2004 to 2009. He's been published widely on the Australian theatre, culture and cultural policy platforms and papers. He is a member of the Currency House Editorial Committee, General Editor of the Platform Papers for Currency House, the brainchild of Catherine Brisbane after Currency Press, and they are about to release their latest papers. Uh, There's going to be so much to talk about. Please welcome Julian Merrick. Thank you very much, Regina. That's That's a very fulsome introduction. I don't think that's even covered anywhere near everything that you do or have done. But before we talk about the state of affairs and the industry faces at the moment and what's coming out in these papers, let's jump into your life as a theatre maker and your interest in the creative industries. When did that all begin? Oh, that's interesting, isn't it? Well, when I was 16, I wanted to be an actor. And I told my mother, and it's one of the few occasions that I can remember her bursting into tears. <laughs> my, my mother was a TV producer and, and she didn't cry easily, um, but she did on that occasion. And my father said, look, absolutely no way. And I ended up going to university and studying politics and economics. Wow. And um, at that point, I knew I was going to go into the theatre, but I wanted to make my parents happy. I didn't know, but I soon came to know how much I enjoyed studying those subjects. Um, But when I finished, I was 22, I thought that that was the last I would ever see them. Um, And I did an MA in theatre directing and then I did what everybody does, which is I started right at the bottom uh, as an assistant director and started to work my way up. Then in the 1990s... Are we talking, before you go ahead, is this in Australia? Uh, it, it, it's in England. And then yeah. I moved to... I, I, I was in England for my undergraduate degree. I was in America for my MA. And then I was in Australia for my PhD. Okay. So I kind of moved across those three countries. Yeah. Um, um, but when I was running my own theatre company, that's when I realised that some of the things that I had learnt back when I was an undergraduate degree, we're going to Mm. become very useful in trying to understand the environment in which Australian theatre has to operate. Um, So that that side of my life, which I thought (laughs) I would never see again, I I can remember leaving my last exam and going, (laughs) goodbye, goodbye forever. (laughs) (laughs) And then suddenly in the middle of the 1990s, I was using it again, mainly to understand, um, you know, kind of government cultural policy and so forth. Um, so I just thought, wow, that's really weird. <laughs> yeah. Everything that you think you've let go actually is attached on some gigantic rubber band and, <laughs> and just bounces back to you. Do you think that a lot of the times creatives, obviously, I mean, I don't know if it's obvious, but don't give enough thought to that side of things? Yes. 
is the simple answer. Mm. It, it, it's a very important framework. So, mm. you know, when we when we do what we do and nobody could have a higher regard for artists and the creative life than I do, um, that there's two mm. bits to it. There's there's how we see ourselves and there's how we're seen by others. And that other bit, how we're seen by others, is a, is a complicated um, and intensely political landscape. And, and that's the one that I think we, we should engage more. As practicing artists, we should understand that that is, um, that while we're away doing whatever it is we do, <laughs> um, mm. making shows or writing books or doing ceramics or whatever, there are other people elsewhere who don't know those particular practices who are nevertheless thinking about us and describing us in particular ways. And that, that conversation, I think, is an important one that we have a voice in. How do we engage in that kind of conversation? I mean, the creative field is something that you're writing what you see or your experience or what you want to, you know, interest or reflecting the world back. But how do you, yeah, engage in that conversation? Well, I, I think the first step is to learn more about it and, and to realise we have an obligation to own at least a part of it. So I, I think it would be... Uh, unrealistic and um, uh, and not a good thing to ask artists to spend their whole life mm. de- defending what it is that they do because yeah. they, they just wouldn't have any time to do it. But I don't think it's unreal to say you, you need to own some part of it, whether, whether it's with the union, the MEAA, who are incredibly important, oh, yeah. um, or whether it's doing what I do, which is basically reading policy documents and analysing them, or whether it's being involved in a peak body as a peer assessor or um, in some way involved in the political process. Okay. Uh, it's important that everybody has some little bit of that, uh, of, of those relationships so that we can act together as a, as a body of practicing artists or pra- you know, cultural practitioners and that we know we've got each other's backs because mm. ultimately this is not really a competitive enterprise. It's not really about, oh, you get the money and I don't or vice versa. It's about um, protecting and propagating and communicating what it is we all do as part of our collective life. Mm. So you're talking about not a personal reflection of what you are, but the industry, the reflection of the industry and having an import into the way that it works and operates. You just said that it's not a competitive industry and, and that's something that is addressed in the papers and we're jumping into there because I want to talk a bit more about your life as a theatre director. But since we're there, you say that it's not. Is it not? Oh, let, let me be a little clearer. There, there are many aspects of our life where we are competing, um, you know, competing with each other, unfortunately, mm. or competing for an audience or whatever it is. But in our interactions with the policy process or with the you know, with the structures that determine our collective lives, that's where we have to cooperate in order to get results. So that's where we've got to put the urge to co- to compete on hold. That that notion of the common good, and here I'm I'm putting my economics and politics hat on. <laughs> um, that that hasn't been at the forefront of modern society, Western society, for thirty, maybe even forty years. So it, it's not just um the, the, the you know the cultural practitioners who um perhaps struggle with what this means and how to action it, it it's also something that i think australian society now faces more uh, more generally and the pandemic and um climate change 
um, the bushfires of 2019. Mm. Those are the kinds of causes that illuminate very clearly this need for cooperative action. Uh, and in culture too, culture is both a part of those issues um, and also has a need for that kind of common cause and collective agenda itself. So tell me a little bit about more about your history on the stage as a director. Did you act mm. as well? I, I, when I was very young, I was terrible. I was really, <laughs> truly, truly awful. No. Um, uh, and when I first started directing, the, the actors I was working with said to me, look, can you sit at the back? Because when you sit at the front, we can see you saying all the words. Uh, so I, I was banished to the kind of the back of the stalls. And now the only time I act is, you know, when I'm, you know, trying to show an actor how to do something badly. Um, uh, so I, I started directing when I was very young. I, I, I think I directed my first show when I was 17. I, what was that? Do you remember? I do. <laughs> Uh, it was Samuel Beckett's Endgame. And, and, oh. and my father said, how can you, as a young man, do something so depressing? Um, and he was kind of appalled. <laughs> and I was lo- in love with Samuel Beckett at that time. Um, Billy Whitelaw was then um, in her, um, you know, close relationship with Samuel Beckett. Mm. And um, I saw some of her, you know, one-person shows. And, you know, Beckett wow. for us was the, the acme of... Of, of modern theatre yeah. and then I went to America to study because I had fallen in love with off-off Broadway theatre okay um, and I I got to know Joe Chaikin a little bit um, through the open theatre and possibly would have stayed in America but but um, was induced to come back to to London which was a bit of a disaster to be honest. You've watched a lot a lot of changes happen and so tell me about what it was like when you came to Australia and what world you were coming into because you've written a lot about observing the changing nature of theatre. Well I had come straight from Margaret Thatcher's Britain so that was one yeah. of the reasons that it was you know so so Dark. difficult when I returned to London it's often quite hard to communicate just how crushing that that world was it Mm. was really it was like living in Dante's inferno and my mother who um, was Australian and um, who had registered my birth as an Australian so even though I grew up in England I Mm -hmm. I grew up basically as an Australian Mm -hmm. um, said you you need to get out go and stay with your grandmother (laughs) Um, so I did I, I got on a plane um, and I came to Australia and it felt to me like I'd, I'd come into another and better world because this was the um, time of uh, Bob Hawke and Paul Keating and um, people behave differently, all the, all the class differences that, that um, inhibit and torment England were just not there or not there in the same way. Um, and it was just so much easier to get a start. And, you know, I, the, the difference perhaps between England and Australia is that in Australia, it's easy to get a start, but once you get to the middle, it's hard to know what to do. Right. Um, and in, in England, it's kind of the other way around. It's getting in that's the problem. And then once you're in, then, you know, your kind of life is sorted. So I, I didn't know that at the time. I just thought, oh, it's really, really amazing to be able to do a show. So I got to Australia in June and by November, I'd opened my first show here, which wow. I just thought was incredible. Where, where was that opened? It was in Sydney. We, we did it in a, a bar in King's Cross and um, and all the critics came. It wasn't, you know, just for a few people. It was it was a really successful show. And I just thought, 
God, I, I just couldn't imagine doing the same in the UK. Mm. Um, but what I then came to realise later in the mid 90s was was that kind of ceiling, glass ceiling, really, mm-hmm. that then hits almost every single Australian artist of a- any kind of um, reputation or any kind of experience, which is we all get pegged in the middle. And then you, you face this awful choice like, well, how do you progress from here? Do you leave the country um, and, and try and pursue your career elsewhere? Or you do you do what eventually I did, which many others have done before me, which is you, you stay here and you try and grow the thing that you are a part of. And for me, really, I date my um, my um, m- moment of realizing that I was a serious artist from that moment, from my awareness that I was going to stay here and commit to Australian theatre uh, and drama. So that was sort of in the mid nineties. Was that was that is that advice you would give to people if you really are dedicated that you just stick with it and commit? Yeah, I would never um, have the temerity to give anybody advice of that nature. Mm. I think it's a very personal decision, um, and um, it means certain things rather than other things. Okay. Um, and it it depends on you know the art form that you're in because obviously the visual arts don't work in that way. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, neither does you know kind of fiction writing Um, they have more of an international footprint and also depends on you you know kind of the context in which you're in where Mm. where, where, you know when you are (laughs) as much as where you are yeah Um, and I was in Australia in the mid 90s still you know with Keating as the prime minister so it still felt to me like the country was expanding and growing Mm. not not just um, economically but spiritually and emotionally He'd just given the Redfern speech. Um, mm. uh, Creative Nation had just been launched. Uh, it felt like a very good project to commit to. Mm. You said that you came into a, a country that had no like class difference, but was there a cultural cringe and is there still a cultural cringe? Oh, you know, that's an interesting question. Um, not as much as some people think, I think. A little bit maybe, but in general, I, I would say that it's not so much a cringe as um, uh, a kind of unfocused or lack of focus about where cultural activity fits in. Okay. Um, so people personally, <laughs> they like it and they value it, but they don't know how to sort of publicly avow it. Um, so it's 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 the public role of culture that that people struggle with in Australia, I think. Mm. Although interestingly, not when they're talking about Indigenous Australian culture, then it's really clear. They understand when they're, um, or say they understand, um, that when they're thinking about, um, uh, you know, Indigenous or First Nations people, that, that, that culture is a part of who they are and what they are, their history and their life. Um, but when you turn to non-Indigenous Australians, mm. they don't express that in the same way. And, th- and that that's, for me, from the outside, that that strikes me as very schizophrenic. Mm. I, I, I'm just like, how can you do this? <laughs> how can you acknowledge something as as whole in one part of your life, but but not see it in another? So that's, that's weird. And I'm not sure that A.A. Phillips's classic phrase, cultural cringe, although I've used it on many occasions, I'm not really sure that that captures the psychic space that we're in anymore. It's more a divided self. Do you think that we don't know ourselves? Why, why do you think we're sort of disconnected or have this sort of schizophrenic relationship to culture? Mm, it's an interesting question. I, I'm not in a 
position and it would be very arrogant of me to sort of give a just a sort of simple glib answer Mm. but I can tell you something that I feel reasonably sure of which is I think that there is a connection somewhere um, uh, on a deep level between Australian history and Australian culture so that a unwillingness perhaps to fully integrate the history of post-colonial Australia, you know, since the time of settlement, Mm. is somehow linked also to this uh, incapacity or unwillingness to give culture its proper place in our collective life. Mm. So there's some link there that I I don't fully understand. I don't, you know, I can't put it into a little formula, Mm. but I I know that somehow an unwillingness to look back (laughs) Mm. is connected with... um, this deafness, even deadness, towards, yeah. you know, towards cultural activity. So let's talk about the papers. In your introduction, you t- you say that the papers are about talking about burning questions of our time. What are they? Well, I think coming out of COVID, mm. really, there's only one question now, which is where the bloody hell are we? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's been two years of very difficult but very mixed experiences Mm. and we've had this collective dilemma or collective problem in in the pandemic but we've all gone through it in a very individual way yeah Um, and so making sense of it on a spiritual level on an emotional level but also even an economic level is going to take time so I'm not quite sure what questions are going to arise out of that Mm. but I know one question that has already arisen which is why wasn't support for cultural practitioners part of the government's uh, policy approach right from the get-go? Yeah. Um, So that became evident um, in the middle of last year. My my wife is a costume designer, so she's still part of, you know, the gig economy. And um, she lost all her work and she got her first job in a year three weeks ago. So if we hadn't had my wage because I was able to teach online, we would have been completely fucked. And I use that word advisedly and specifically. Mm. Um, And indeed, there were many friends of mine who were in a similar position. So that's a question that's going to need an answer. Um, And already before that time, there were some issues to do with the fact that the broader policy framework coming from the government, from the federal government here, Mm. was not clear, uh, it was not consistent, um, and it wasn't effective. So there are a range of subsidiary questions that percolate down from that to do mainly with people thinking, how am I going to sustain this? (laughs) How am I going to live a life in in the arts, even a crappy one? Um, And I think that those questions are very important right now they've they've come to the front right now as people have been unable to sellotape the little gigs together in the way that they were doing prior to the pandemic and so the bigger questions to do with oh well you know some of the big ideas that are floating around are to do with a universal basic income or a universal basic service you know Mm. there are similar ideas those things that look so remote and so kind of um, academic really prior to um the pandemic i think they're now uh in the limelight and we're going to have to discuss them um so i i I don't know quite how other little questions are going to emerge and and some not so little ones like you know the the central role of indigenous 
arts and culture from this point onwards, not just for itself, but as a kind of um, sinusure or central core for the whole of Australian arts and culture. Um, but that's very hard to admit while the Uluru Statement is not adopted. So again, you see that arts and culture are not sort of floating alone like some little boat on an ocean. They're actually all connected with these kind of broader social and historical questions. And those questions have now arrived. They're at the doorstep and they're not going away. Mm. You you write a lot about the influence of like the Redfern speech or the history of, of theatre. And is this a, a unique time again? Is it is it can you still look at the past to give us answers in creating, uh, I don't know, the, a stronger policy? You know, we've always been underemployed or have job insecurity or what has the past told us or are there examples overseas yeah um there's a is it is it the australian artist is it andy bennett or tony bennett i never remember uh, he has this wonderful piece of artwork it's just a blank sheet with one um work, one, one phrase on it which is mm. no future without a past mm-hmm. um and and that's that's the literal truth there is the only way forward is to go back to the past and try and understand where we've come from. Otherwise, you're just going round in a loop. And I mean, that applies to every area of our collective life, but it Mm. particularly applies to arts and culture. So there has been um, my my sort of academic enemy, really, in a way, (laughs) is what I call the upgrade theory of culture. Which, which is where, you know, kind of culture replaces itself, like, like, like our fridges replace themselves or our cars replace themselves and go, oh, look, I've got a, a culture now which is much better than the culture that we had 10 years ago. And it's absurd. I mean, any, any historian will tell you that that's an absolutely incredibly self-defeating <laughs> and um, myopic way of looking at the way culture works or history works. Mm. Um, so you, you kind of reach a point where... You, you know, your your life is so saturated with meaning because of the actions that you've taken in the past or other people have taken in the past, mm. that to sort of think of yourself as a kind of totally new creative entity doing something completely new is to kind of misrepresent what it is that you've got to offer on a personal level. Um, and it's not that you need to do, you know, what the past did, absolutely mm. not. But it means that we're in conversation with the past now in the present in order to know what to do next Mm. so that all sounds very esoteric but as somebody who's kind of moved from the world of practice to the world of policy to the world of history so i spend a lot of my time looking at what other artists have done Mm. in their lives Mm. and i i know that these three things belong together and i know that really i think a you know a genuine and sustainable way forward for us all can only really be achieved when those those three things the past the present and the future come together in some kind of dialogue mm. and that's where the you know that's where the platform papers have their role yeah so tell us a little bit about some of the people that are writing and what are the ideas and issues I and mean, one of them was you know the value of culture the how to value our artists yes well i'll i'll talk a little bit about the the new platform paper that we've got yep. coming out new platform mm. paper number 1 Um, So that's out in December in all the bookshops and also online. And it's a very nice looking book um, and very Christmassy. I can't help feeling. (laughs) So if somebody was thinking, golly, what will I get 
for somebody for Christmas, just that little thing, then it yeah. looks very nice. Mm. And I, I work with, and to some extent for Harriet Parsons, who's the director of um, uh, uh, the new platform papers. And, and Harriet is uh, by background a visual artist, so it's very tasteful. <laughs> very nice item. So there we go. Um, and Catherine um, Brisbane's daughter. Yes, that's right. Harriet, Harriet is so that you see there the the continuities yeah. as well as the kind of desire for change. Mm. Um, so this they're a collection of essays, and they came from an event which we held earlier in the year, um, which we call the Authors Convention, where we got mm. all our past authors, there's over sixty of them, together to debate. Um, some of the things that are happening now, but also to consider some of the ideas that they had proposed over a 16-year period. Because oh. there comes a point in your life where if you if you persist in a certain line of work, I suppose, or you mm. you know you realise that you you've got um, you've created an asset. I think Harriet would like that word very much. Mm. Um, uh, you you've got something that you can talk about and you can point to and you can reconsider. So it, it, platform papers had reached that point when we decided to kind of refresh really as the new platform papers and the annual, the authors convention, which we'll now hold annually, mm. was a moment to sort of gather the clans and, and ask for or um, curate really some particular uh, contributions. And Harriet and I, Harriet trained as a bookkeeper. I trained as a political economist. So we, we have this very strong interest in the environment in which arts and culture has to operate mm. and a very strong desire to communicate that to practitioners and artists of all kinds as something of interest. So Harriet invited Richard Bronk, who's a leading economic philosopher really from England, mm. to give the kind of the main address. Um, and it's it's a it's a wonderful essay about the role of imagination in mm, economics. Mm. But economics at the moment, I think I can probably say this, is a um, is a discipline in crisis mm. um, because it was supposed to do all sorts of good things and it hasn't done them. Yeah. <laughs> um, so um, that's another podcast for another time. <laughs> um, but but um, Rick, Richard Bronk is part of that. Um, I think more reflective component of economics that goes, you know, something hasn't gone right here. So the essay is a wonderful uh, combination of talking economics, but also talking about romantic poetry. Mm. Um, then, let me just ask before you go on: is was it him or was it Harriet that wrote about um, the romantic economist uh, Coleridge's lamp? That was Richard. Oh, it's beautiful. Yeah, it's a beautiful. It's a beautiful metaphor image. for our mind shining. Absolutely. Absolute light on things, yeah. That's right. That that the light that we see by emanates in part from the concepts that we hold, which is why it's so important that we actually reflect on those concepts and we have some. Don't, it matters less that we are wrong mm. that, than we actually try to hold yeah. these bigger ideas in our head. Um, uh, and then we we invited John Quiggan, who I think is one of Australia's, well, he is one of Australia's leading economists, um, to um, um, to into an interview with Jonathan Biggins, yeah. one of Australia's leading satirists. <laughs> and it's it's a delightful, incredibly Thanks. funny, but also incredibly insightful interview mm. between these two titans of their field. And then um, as the sort of fourth contribution, and there's a few more things in the book, which I'll explain, um, um, Astrid Jorgensen, who ran, ran Pub Choir, started Pub Choir, 
and then mm. flipped online um, uh, uh, during the pandemic to to found Couch Choir, which is a community uh, wide uh, community event for people who think they can't sing but they can yeah. or like me sing really badly <laughs> but it doesn't matter I'm completely converted by Astrid and she spoke um, as well so we had these this kind of beautiful balance of contributions between an economic philosopher basically an artist and an economist and then an artist um, so we put those together I've written a little um you know, kind of tiny little bit of a curtain raiser, really, to explain what the new platform papers are. Mm. Harriet's written a proper introduction. And we've also included Catherine Brisbane's last platform paper, yeah. which is an overview of all the platform papers written in the original series. Mm. So the, the idea, or at least my idea, um, which I, I think Harriet agrees with, <laughs> is that you could buy the book. And in a way, if you read it from cover to cover, you'd be completely up to date. You'd know everything about the series, why it was founded, basically everything that it had covered in the 16 years that it's been going. Mm. And then you would get these wonderful contributions that have been made by um, the, you know, our current mm. authors yeah. through the Authors' mm. Convention. A really terrific insight into, yeah, the times. And I, I want to read everything that you've written, Julian, Merrick, now. Thank you so much for joining me. My pleasure. Thank you very much, Regina. Well, that was Julian Merrick and... The platform papers are out on the 1st of December.